Well, again, good afternoon and welcome to the Gathering of the Trails Church. And again, happy anniversary Sunday to you. Uh, last night, Samantha and I, we sat down and uh, just rehearsed a little bit of how the Lord first began to put Winnipeg, specifically the planting of this church, on our hearts and some of the craziness that happened around it, uh, and yet how God provided kind of every step of the way, as funny as, as well as a funny story of something that happened to her on our launch Sunday that's kind of embarrassing. I'm not going to tell it to you, um, make you go listen to it if you want to hear it. Um, but but if, you, if you haven't got an opportunity to listen to that, uh, do that. Uh, it's on our equipping podcast called Basecamp. Um, and it's a little bit of kind of the behind-the-scenes stories of how we got here as a ministry. And one of the things that I mentioned uh, in that episode was, was how nostalgic I've been feeling as we've been approaching today, this Sunday, thinking through the last three years or so of all that God has done in the life of our church. And as I've done so, I've been both filled with thankfulness and incredible gratitude uh, to God for every single bit of it, of just how he used a myriad of things really to shape the culture and the DNA uh, of our church. As we walk through man, times of great joy as a church, as we uh, have celebrated baptisms and starting new ministries, equipping leaders, and even that great opportunity and joy we had of sending out uh, our first church plant, which we pray there will be many, many more. There's been a lot of joy, but also if you think about the last three years, there has been a lot of adversity, right? Like, I mean, politically, during a season when we smuggled people into our basements uh, and drove out to the forest so we could keep gathering together as a church, that was wild, more fun than anything, but a time of adversity. Uh, but, but rather, I was also thinking about the adversity that many of us have walked through personally over the last three years, a number of things that, that we have walked through, deep seasons of grief and hardship and, and how we've experienced the way that God has provided for us both comfort and encouragement through the brothers and sisters here in our church family as they have committed to carrying the load with us and praying for us by bringing meals and striving to be a comfort in those seasons. And, you know, as a, as a pastor, I often get asked about you. People are like, hey, what's this church, the trails? Who are you? What are you like? Usually it's only pastors that ask me that question. Normal people don't ask me that. Um, really weird pastors, like, tell me about your church. Uh, and the first thing that comes to my mind, actually, are, are the words that my dad said a couple of months ago. Do you remember what he said about us as a church? He said, well, we're strange. Uh, we're very, so the first thing I say is, well, they're very strange. Uh, and people don't, other pastors, they don't know what to do with that, uh, first off. They're like, what do you, their face gets really weird. Like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, strange, I said, because firstly, we as a church love being together. I, say, I often say that uh, hardly a Sunday passes where I don't leave this building before 5 p.m. because we just love to stick around and hang out and have conversations and pray with one another and spend time together. We're strange. When we have a, when we have a members meeting, on a, sometimes we do it on a Wednesday, I don't leave here until like 10.30 or 11. Uh, like it's strange. We just love to be together. Not only that, we're strange because of our love for God's word. We love to sink our teeth into what we see that the Bible really says. And we love to sing loudly. Our church is a loud singing church. I don't know if you know that about yourself. You're loud, and I love it. We just love to fill our mouths with God's goodness. And, and we love to walk through books of the Bible together and be equipped and trained in God's word, knowing that God's words are more important than the words of men. We're also strange because of our overwhelming generosity as a church. 
so that by God's grace, we were able to, as I mentioned, send out a new church plant and bless them with over $31,000 as they're getting started. But, but we're also strange because written into the DNA of our church is this risk-taking, gospel-believing, God-trusting DNA, which led men and women of our church to lay down the blank check of their lives and give up businesses and leave behind family members and financial security so they might leverage their lives to make Jesus known in Calgary. I've never heard, I've heard about this happening in the States, but never in Canada where a group of 20 people are sent out of a church to go plant a church somewhere else. I've just never heard of that. I've been praying that something like that would happen, uh, and then God answered. Uh, And that's strange. It's really strange, but it's also really cool. And just thinking about all that God has done in our midst over the last three years is really just nothing short of a miracle. It's a miracle I didn't end up in jail a number of times. Uh, it's, it, it's a miracle of what God has worked in a lot of your hearts and lives. Some of you weren't Christians when you started hanging out around us and you learned about Jesus and became a Christian. Some of you watching what God has done in your life over the last number of years of growing you and maturing you, man, is, is beautiful. It's a miracle. And quite honestly, this is kind of the church that I always hoped that I would be a part of. Samantha and I just look at one another every now and then, and if we say that to one another, we're like, this is kind of the place I always wished I would have been a part of. And by God's special grace working in and through the life of our church, this is who we are. We're this Jesus-loving, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated, radically generous men and women partnering together in membership, all to make Jesus known. And as one of your pastors, I just want you to know it's a deep joy and a privilege to lead this ministry. So thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for putting up with a weird service time. I could meet at one in the afternoon. That's weird. Uh, Thank you uh, as we're meeting in a building that I would often say is ghetto chic. (laughs) That's what I say about this place. It's like kind of gangstery, old school. I don't know where I'm at. It's it's weird, and you put up with how ugly it is. So praise God for you. Uh, th- thank you as well for every conversation with somebody that you see that walks in that you don't know, and you just want to make them feel welcome and comfortable, and so you go out of your way to talk with them and to open up and to invite them into your life. And thank you as well for all of the generosity and kindness that you offer to one another so often. Thank you for serving in Trails Kids and opening up your homes in, in small groups and in friendship. Thank you for partnering with us as a ministry. I'm grateful for you. And you know, while the last three years have not been all roses and puppies, they have demonstrated just the great kindness and the goodness of God extended to us through Jesus and the comforts that are found in a local church family. And so personally, Thank you for being a part of my life and a part of the life of this church. It is a joy to know you. And if today is your first time with us as a church, maybe you're invited here by a friend or family member or neighbor, I want to thank you as well, partly because you just walked through a lot of sappiness with me. Thank you. Uh, and, and also thank you for joining us. I, I know coming to a new church can be unnerving and a little scary, so thanks for joining along and and being here for this special occasion. 
And if I have you on to meet you, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors and preachers here at the Trails. I probably should have introduced myself way before now. Um, but, but I have the wonderful job of, of opening up God's Word with you today and diving into that text that was just read for us. Now, if you are newer to the Bible, uh, I, I wanted to begin today, actually, by giving a little Coles Notes explanation of what we see unfold before we get into our text today, so that it's a little bit clearer on how this text and this book fits in kind of the overarching storyline of the Bible. So that if you're brand new to the Bible, you kind of know where the Gospel of John and what we're beginning to talk about today makes sense. And so that if, if you're a Christian, you can remember this well and, and know how to explain it to you if a friend asks you, like they did me a couple of years ago. I was sitting at a Starbucks and a guy walked up to me and I was reading my Bible and he said, hey, you're a Christian? I said, yeah. He said, is that a Bible? I said, yeah. He said, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What's the deal? Why old? Why new? What's, ha- what's it all about? And I was like, Gah! like put on the spot. Uh, I was like, I'm glad I went to seminary. Uh, so I'm going to help you not have to go to seminary and have an answer. Uh, so, so to begin with, uh, there's two sections of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament really opens by explaining how God made everything out of nothing simply by speaking it into existence. And how everything that God made was good. It was perfect, flawless, including humanity, you and I, as God made us in his image as men and women, complementing one another and glorifying God as we were made in his image. Then throughout that first chapter of the Bible, we see how God made us as vice regents or prime ministers over everything that God has created so that we operate under his kingship uh, as the king of kings, as the one who's, he's in charge and whom we have to give an account for how we steward everything that is his. And we have to obey his laws that he set into place. What we see happen as the Bible unfolds is that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they wanted to become like God. They wanted to be the king over everything. They didn't want to be prime ministers. They wanted to be the king and the queen over everything. And so they rebelled against God's laws by breaking them, therefore committing divine treason. And when they did, everything good became broken. So the relationship they had with God is now broken. With one another is broken. The relationship within themselves is broken. The relationship that they had with creation, with all that God has made, also broken. Everything is now skewed, broken, bent, and fallen. And immediately upon rebelling against God, they felt shame for the very first time. And instead of running to God and admitting their sin and asking for forgiveness, they do what our kids do and what we do as adults when we sin. They hid and they shifted the blame and kind of explained it was someone else's fault for their rebellion and their divine treason. Now, the consequences for divine treason is the same consequences as treason in most countries of the world, swift judgment and death. And what we see in the Bible is that while God does come in judgment, right, there are consequences for us uh, and for the sins of Adam and Eve that, I mean, still plague us today and explain why the world around us is so broken. But that's not the surprising part as we read through the first three chapters of the Bible. In fact, the surprising part is that before God tells Adam and Eve the consequences for their sins, he actually gives them a promise that there will come a day where a son will be born, a promised son, who will come into the world and who will redeem and restore everything that was just broken because of their sin and rebellion. The son will come and restore the relationship between humanity, you and I, and God. 
and the brokenness in our relationship with one another and the brokenness inside of us and the brokenness in our relationship with all of creation. Thus, throughout the whole Old Testament, what we see is baby boy, and that's the first three, that's just the first three chapters of the Old Testament. But then what we see throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament is baby boy after baby boy that is born into the world. And with every time we see a little baby boy born, we ask and wonder, is this going to be the son who was promised? Is this going to be him? Is this going to be him? Is this going to be him? That's, that's all we do every time we walk through. We see this little baby boy born in this line of promise. We're like, is this going to be him? And yet while we do have a lot of great heroes in the Bible, a lot of men and women who are faithful to do what God calls them to do, the Bible also presents these people kind of warts and all, and we see all of their faults and failures. So that as we see them and wonder, could this be him? And then we see this little baby boy grow up and do something really dumb. And we're like, nope, not him. And then another one, and we're like, this could be him. And then, and then another one, and and that's kind of the whole Old Testament, just constant roller coaster ride. Is this him? And it is not and so uh, we, we see that it's because this brokenness, it hits all of them. Every single one of us that we're all born into this world is broken and bent as rebels who rebel. Thus throughout the whole Old Testament, we begin with the promise of a coming son. And as the book goes on, what happens is as we see these, these heroes, these good men and women throughout God's word, what we do is we kind of get like a sharper and sharper vision of what this coming son will be like. It's kind of like, have any of you ever been to the eye doctor and they put this weird contraption over your face and they, they have those little flippy thingies? I don't know if they still do that or if now it's all just automated. It probably is. Um, but, but it used to be those little, those little flippy things. I don't know the name for that. But it makes your vision progressively better and better by examining more blurry images and then really clear ones. And the whole goal in getting your eyes checked is to get right which one is blurry and which one is not, which is my greatest fear as I'm sitting in that chair because they're like, A or B? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And then I like, do it again. They're like, no, no, back, back to A, back to B. And then you just guess. You're like, B. <laughs> and they're like, are you sure? You're like, no, <laughs> I'm not. And that's kind of the way that it walks as we're walking through the Old Testament. We see these glimpses of what this coming son will be through negative examples and positive ones. But in the positive ones, we see true prophets, good kings, faithful priests. In the bad ones, we see false prophets, evil kings, faithless priests. So we see, oh, he's not going to be like that. Oh, he's going to kind of be like that. He's not going to be like that. He's going to kind of be like that, leading us to greater and greater clarity of what this son will be like, who will rule and reign and fix everything that is broken and sad and make it all untrue. But then the interesting thing is that the Old Testament ends and there are 400 years of silence where God's people are just waiting. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and now they wait some more until one day an angel comes to herald the great news of the promised son coming. That's what many of you, when you go to church at Christmas time, this is what you hear of this promised son. So that's how the New Testament opens by explaining that Jesus is this promised son, this true and better king over God's people, this better prophet who speaks the very words of God and corrects false teaching, and this faithful priest who will make the ultimate sacrifice, laying down his life to satiate, to satisfy the wrath, the anger, the judgment of God against our sin so that we can be forgiven and restored and put back into a right and pure relationship with God, with one another, within ourselves, and with all of creation once again. So so the New Testament starts with these kind of four complementary accounts of the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John. So there are four complementary accounts explaining how Jesus lived and what he taught, all going and working towards how he died and rose from the dead. And today we're going to be starting by walking through the gospel according to John. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to be in this book for about the next year and three months. Uh, so we'll take uh, a break during summer, go back to the book of Psalms, uh, and then we'll come right back in and we'll finish right before Christmas 2024. So we'll be in the book of John for a while. Uh, and so I, I'm excited to, to open and to study it. Uh, the book of John is one of my favorite books of the Bible, uh, and it's vitally important in understanding the person and the work of Jesus. In fact, I shared a, a quote this past week that Martin Luther, he famously said, that should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and of the gospel of John escaped him, Christianity would be saved. So if you're wondering, is this a good book to read? Martin Luther says, yes. Uh, and, and then uh, Augustine, if you're, not con- if you're not convinced, Augustine, an early church father from over 1,500 years ago in commenting on the book of John, this is what he said. I love this. He said, John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim in, but shallow enough for a child not to drown. And I read that and I said, like, that's it. That's the aim of our entire study as we walk through the book of John. So if you're here and you're a mature Christian, it's good to know as you're diving into the gospel of John that there will be plenty of room for you to swim in the depths of this book. There are beauties to be relished in that await you, like a deep underground treasure trove hidden inside of a pirate's chest that you'll find. It's beautiful. And if you're a brand new Christian, maybe you're kicking the tires on Christianity, trying to understand what it even means to follow Jesus, Augustine wants you to know that you too can read through this book and profit greatly from it, from what we study in it. So before we do dive into the gospel according to John and take a look at the first five verses, I want to spend a moment, as we always do before diving into any book of the Bible, focusing on this big question. One, what is, or sorry, who is the author of this book? And you might just say, John, I think you're right. In some books of the Bible, what we were told, we're kind of told the author almost immediately, but this one, actually, if you look into the history of the Gospel of John, it's a little bit trickier uh, than you might uh, explicitly think because John never comes out and explicitly names himself. Actually, if you read through the entire Gospel of John, he does not even mention his name once in the entire book. He doesn't say, by the way, it's me, John, I wrote this. That would have been helpful. He doesn't do that. But when we examine the internal evidence of the book, we come away with five really big things that we know about the author. And here they are. First is that he was a Jew. Secondly, of Palestine. Third, an eyewitness. Fourthly, he's an apostle. We know that he's one of the 12 apostles. And lastly, he is the apostle John. Now, (laughs) you might be wondering, well, you just said that nowhere he comes out and names himself as the author. How do we know it's the Apostle John? Well, the bulk of the argument for John being the author of this book comes from church history and is unanimous, including the eyewitness of Theophilus and Irenaeus, along with Polycarp, who knew John. That's a great, like, gives you the book. I wrote this. And then you know, hey, he wrote this. Uh, so, so the early church fathers unquestionably attribute the book to the Apostle John, and they do so at an incredibly early age. But here's where the intrigue is, uh, is, that, is that John does nowhere name himself as the author of this book. Rather, what he does is stylistically refer to himself as simply the disciple whom Jesus loved, 
We see that in John chapter 13, verse 23. Or, or as we call him, the beloved disciple. And that's why there's this little friendly debate among recent scholars. It, it didn't exist before like the 1800s, but recent scholars all of a sudden decided, well, maybe John did not write this book. Uh, and uh, so they dis disagree with church history uh, and try to come up with all these ideas of, well, who was this guy? What was this? And so that's why there's a friendly debate uh, of, of people who all agree the author was an apostle and a Jew of Palestine and an eyewitness to everything he wrote about, but maybe not the apostle John. But for me, I'm very okay holding to the traditional view as well as the view of the early church that it was the Apostle John. Now, can you disagree with me and we remain friends? Yes, we can. Uh, but I'll try to persuade you uh, that it's the Apostle John. Now, secondly, when did he write the book? Well, there's no copyright date on this book. You saw no little, little C with a little date next to it anywhere. But uh, we can square it between A.D. 55 and 95. It's a 40-year window though it's probably nearer to the end of that time period than the beginning. So most scholars place it around 80 AD. Now, why did John write the book? Why did he write? Well, thankfully, John tells us why he wrote the book in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. So if you want to flip over there in your Bibles and make a little note in the margin, maybe a little star, maybe a little square box and say, main purpose or something like that, that'd be a great thing to do to let you know, to remind you why John wrote everything that he did in this book. And here's what we read there. We read, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, that's why on this little image that we have for our sermon series, we have added that little phrase, that you may believe. We want you to see the Gospel of John, and then so that you may believe. We want to have to be front and center to remind us as we walk through this book of why it was written. Specifically, it was written so that you may believe. And not just believe anything you want. Rather, the aim is that you may believe specifically that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed king, the son that we've been waiting for all the way from Genesis chapter 3. And that's exactly what John wants us to walk away with, and that's his big aim. That is the big E on the eye chart that he wants you to see. That the aim of the entire book is not that you may walk away with historical facts about Jesus, about what he said and the miracles that he accomplished, though you will hear those and see them. Nor is it that you might learn important doctrines that you need to be able to defend that Christianity is built upon, though you will learn lots of really important doctrines in this book. Brother, the tip of the spear on this entire gospel is that you and I might be transformed by it, that God would work a miracle in your heart as you study it, as you read what God says, that you might be given by God the Spirit, faith to believe, to the end that you may have life. And in all transparency, that phrase, so that you may believe, there's actually a textual variant in the Greek in different manuscripts, meaning that there are different ways that this can be translated from the Greek, either making that phrase a present subjunctive or an aorist subjunctive. And all of you just said, oh, yes. Right. So if it's been a hot minute since you've studied linguistics, I'm going to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. You ready? 
This phrase, that you may believe, it's either one of two ways. First, it's either evangelistic, meaning that the book of John was written for the express purpose that if you aren't a Christian and you're reading through the book, it was written so that you may come to believe in Jesus for the very first time, which would be a great thing. So you could have this evangelistic purpose. This is why, for example, uh, lots of ministries all over the world hand out Gospels of John to people, saying, here, read this. And then people read it, and they become Christians. They're like, Jesus really is God. And they're like, yes, he is. And he really did die on the cross for my sins. Yes, he did. And he rose from the dead. Yes, he did. I believe in him. Great. So, so it's this evangelistic purpose. That could be one reason. The second could be for an edification purpose. So that if you've already come to believe upon Jesus, then this book will help you continue on in the faith, to continue on believing. That's why what I think Augustine said about this text is so correct. It is good for a mature Christian to read through it, to swim through it. It's deep enough to do that, to dive deeply within it, but it's also shallow enough. So that if you're a new Christian or you're exploring Jesus, you won't drown, but rather you will have life. That's the goal. Don't drown, have life. So so John does both of these things, I think. So I pray that what we would see both of these things happen as we study the book. If you're here and you're just exploring Christianity, I, I pray that you might, as we study the book of John together, that you might come to a saving faith in Jesus as your God, Savior, and King. And if you're a Christian, I pray that you would grow deeply in your faith and that this book would come alongside of you, along life's narrow way, as one of God's great gifts to you, to preserve and to persevere you in faith, that you might know what you have believed and you might continue on in it. So with that said, let's dive into the first five verses of this book. And as we do, I'm going to start by doing something abnormal, something that we never do. If you're here and you're like, do they do this often? That's strange. The answer is no. But from time to time, time to time, I do because I'm strange. I'm, what I'm going to do, I'm going to begin a sentence from the Bible and I want you to finish it. Now, I want you to finish it loudly. Pretend that you know the answer and you're going to scream it. Uh, scream. Maybe not, but loudly. You with me? I'm going to ask you a question. You respond loudly. In, you with me? Tracking? Here, present, ready to go. Beauty. All right, so I'm going to start a sentence. Da, 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 da. I'm going to pause. You fill it in. You ready? Great. Here we go. All right, finish this Bible sentence. In the beginning. Ooh. I heard two different things. Did you hear two different things? What is the first thing that you heard? Was the word? What's the other thing you heard? God created the heavens and the earth. And if so, great job. So what we see happen here at the beginning of John is this beautiful and interesting thing. See, the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth was written a very, very long time ago by Moses. And it reminds us that it's God who existed from before everything was created. And that it was God who spoke everything into existence by the word of his power, forming and then filling the earth, creating everything that exists. And that's the exact same image that John wants in your mind as you begin to read his book. In the beginning, back when God created the heavens and the earth, all the way back then, in the beginning was the word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, before we begin diving into this beautiful opening phrase and start unpacking everything that we see there, we first need to pause and ask the question, who is the Word? Because if not, you're going to be confused. For about the next 10 minutes or so, you'll be like, I don't know. And the first thing that we notice here is that this Word, Word, is being personified. It's a person. So we aren't simply talking about a spoken Word, but rather we see this Word is a person. Person. So just as we uh, see within other forms of poetry, for example, that wisdom can be personified, we see, for example, that in the Bible and throughout literature. So to here, John is personifying, he's given personal human attributes and personhood to this word, word. And that's important because we aren't dealing with an impersonal force or power. Rather, when we see this word, word, it's capitalized like that in your Bible so that you know you're dealing with a person. And this isn't just a guess or wishful thinking, by the way. Rather, if you were simply to look at verse 2, you would see he, and that's the only one that that could be referring to contextually. But if you look down actually to verse 14, scrolling down there, you would see this word, it does what? became flesh. It put on flesh and dwelt among us. It lived among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if we're looking simply in context, what we see unfold is that this word poetically refers to the Son of the Father, to Jesus. Thus, what John begins to write in this account of the life, death, burial, and resurrection, the very first thing he wants us to know out the gate is that Jesus was with the Father in the very beginning. In the very beginning, from before anything that was made. Just like the Father was there in the beginning, so was the Son. Meaning, of course, that as we read through the book of John and we see Jesus, we all have to assume that he is simply a man, created like you and I, trying his best to please God and succeeding where we failed. No, because we see right out the gate, in the beginning, he was there with the Father in the beginning. And so when we read that opening line, in the beginning was the Word, we can substitute in our minds the name Jesus. That'll help you read it a little bit easier. So we might read in the beginning was Jesus. And what John is highlighting here in this beautiful phrase in Greek is that from before all of creation, way back in the beginning, from before anything that was made was made, Jesus is already in existence with God the Father. And as we will learn throughout this book, also with God the Spirit. This is why, as Christians, we believe in a triune God, in a trinity. If you've ever heard the word trinity, that's what we mean, that that we believe that we have one God that we know as three persons. So the word trinity is, is created to help reveal we believe in one God that we know as three persons. And what we see throughout the Bible is that the persons of the trinity have different roles and responsibility, which I found for me personally as a Christian is the easiest way to comprehend the complexity of God. Like, I feel like if we're trying to understand God, it's like ants trying to understand us and computers. I don't even understand computers. Some of you do. Uh, but maybe it'd be like me trying to understand a computer. Uh, but but it's, it's more like an, an ant being able to try to comprehend something really intellectually going on. And, and so the easiest way to comprehend the complexity of God is to understand that there are different roles and responsibilities within the Godhead, within who God is. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean there are different roles and responsibilities? 
Well, what we see throughout the Bible is that God the Father, He is the person of the Trinity who plans and purposes all things. Whereas God the Son, Jesus, accomplishes all that God the Father has planned, and He does so as God the Spirit gives life to all that the Son creates for the glory of God the Father. I'm going to say that again. That's a confusing statement. You ready? Here we go. God the Father purposes and plans all things, whereas God the Son, Jesus, accomplishes all that the Father has planned, and he does so as God the Spirit gives life to all that the Son creates for the glory of the Father. So think about creation. Think about how God made everything. So in creation, for example, we see that it is God the Father who plans creation. It's God the Son, Jesus, who is the agent of creation. Now let's double click on that for a second because that's exactly what we see in verse three in our text today, right? All things were made through him, which is a positive statement. And then negatively for the effect, we read, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's what we see is there, apart from Jesus, nothing is created, nothing. That's what John is saying. And he isn't alone. In fact, if you look at me in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, this is what we read. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So the Father plans creation. Jesus, God the Son, creates everything that exists. And God the Spirit gives life to what the Son creates for the glory of the Father. Now, we also see the Godhead at work, not only in creation, but also in our salvation. Right, so think about it. We see, remember from Ephesians chapter 1, God the Father is the one who plans our salvation from before the foundations of the world. Do you remember that? But is the Father the one who, who becomes flesh, lays humanity alongside of divinity and steps into time. Is that the Father who does that? Does the Father die on the cross for you? No, that's Jesus, right? That seems like the Sunday school answer. Yes, Jesus. Uh, But it's God the Son, Jesus, who put on flesh and bone and stepped into time to accomplish our salvation at the cross in his death and resurrection. And it's God the Spirit who then has the job to give faith to you and I as we hear the gospel He is the one who empowers Christians to share their faith with us, and then the Spirit convinces us that we are sinful and that God is holy so that we deserve nothing but judgment for our sin, but then the Spirit convinces us of the truthfulness of Jesus, that Jesus died the death we should have died, and then the Spirit gives us faith to repent and believe upon Jesus so that we may be forgiven for our many sins. Not only that, but then it's the Spirit who indwells us and empowers us to live out our Christian faith and then to share the gospel with others so that the Spirit might work in them and save them. And then they become saved, and then the Spirit indwells them and empowers them for ministry, and then they share the gospel with someone else. And that's how all of you became Christians in the first place. As somebody opened up and shared their mouth, and the Spirit gave life to you, convinced you. That's the only way that anyone ever becomes a Christian so that our salvation is planned by God the Father, accomplished by God the Son, and applied by God the Spirit. That's also why, by the way, that we always ask God to save people that aren't Christians. Do you ever think about that? 
What a, what a fascinating thing that we pray. We pray, God, I pray that you would save them. Why do you pray that? Because only God can save them. This is what Christians believe. Only God can do that. God the Father planned it. God the Son, Jesus, accomplished it. God the Spirit, apply it. So when we're praying that, we're praying, God the Spirit, please give them a mind to comprehend. Give them a heart that is soft. Give them ears that hear. Help them. Give them faith to believe. And then we trust and we wait for God to do so. So we simply recognize that God reveals himself in the Bible as one God that we know as three persons. Now, this is important to say that it's not as if God puts on a mask and acts like a father and then another mask where he acts like the son and then another mask where he acts like God the Spirit. Rather, the scripture reveals that there is one God who eternally has existed, always and forever, from eternity past as three persons, co-equal and co-eternal. Now, you might wonder, why am I telling you all this? Well, at the beginning of this gospel account, at the beginning of, of our study, John wants us to be aware that when we see Jesus, we are seeing the eternal second person of the Trinity in the flesh. One who has always existed and who was never created. For in the beginning, just like God the Father, Jesus was already in existence. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Right? Kind of like the same way that you can be with another person, but you cannot be with a table. Have you ever said that? Oh, I'm just sitting here at the diner with the table. You never say that because the word with demands that you're there with a person. And that's exactly what this word in the Greek means. It's a, it's a personal word, with. And so in the beginning, Jesus was, the word was, with God. So in the beginning, he was with the Father. Thus he is distinguishable from the Father, enjoying a personal relationship with him. This word with implies by nature a face-to-face -face relationship that Jesus had with the Father in the beginning, one of equality. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John doesn't want us to miss the point here. Jesus was in the beginning, never created, with God the Father, and is God. And we need to remember that because all the miracles in the words of Jesus are the very words and actions of God. So as we walk through our study, we're not just seeing a man who's a good prophet or a kind person or someone who became God. No, no. That's not what we're seeing at all. Rather, we are seeing God who has come down to us to reveal himself. Because in matters of the heart, one always goes themselves. So that's verse 1. And then verse 2, in case we missed it. John puts the cookies on the bottom shelf again. He writes, he was in the beginning with God. And then verses three and four is where we learn that Jesus is, as we mentioned, the agent of creation, as we talked about a minute ago. He is the one who created everything that exists. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Thus, just like all the way back in Genesis, where everything that came into being did so because of God's spoken word, so too, John here is kind of pulling back the curtain, and he's letting us know that within the Godhead, it is Jesus who is the agent of creation. 
Now, a minute ago, we mentioned in the book of Hebrews in regards to this, but this fact that Jesus is the creator is also taught in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, as we see all things were created by him and even for him, and that in him all things hold together. Now, if you want to hear a great sermon, I mean a really great sermon on this text, you can check out the Knox Baptist Church podcast. Uh, They are preaching through the book of Colossians. It's not out yet, but Nino is going to be preaching it in two weeks, and it's going to be great. So uh, I haven't listened to it yet, but I know Nino. It's going to be great. So go there. Check it out. It's going to be great. Uh, and, And then these verses, all these verses on Jesus being the agent of creation are also really important verses to understand and to meditate on, even to memorize. And here's why. Here's why. It's because when sharing Jesus with those who don't know know him, they will wonder indeed if Jesus really is God or if he's just a man. You ever been asked that question by someone you've been sharing the gospel with? Well, wait, so like, are you saying Jesus is like just a dude or are you saying that he's God? And you're like, he's the God man, actually. And they're like, I don't understand. Uh, fully God and fully man. This is what we need to understand as God's people, is as we're trying to even share the gospel, or if you're here and you're trying to learn about who is Jesus, this is what we believe as Christians, that he is 100% God and 100% man. And texts like this really help teach us and others what the Bible says about Jesus, that he is the one who created everything that exists. Also, it's really important to remember that Jesus taught this so clearly that his enemies wanted him dead, and his disciples wrote about it. And his disciples were killed for the simple fact that they professed with their mouths, Jesus is God. That's a a crazy way to die if you're like, oh, he didn't really say that, though. You know? And this is what we begin to see, actually, as we read John 10. A couple of months or longer, we'll see in John 10, they were trying to stone Jesus because he, being a man, made himself God, which is blasphemy for you or I to say, I am God, blasphemy. But for Jesus, he is God. So it's not blasphemy for him to say he is God. And they understood him perfectly. Not only that, but look at what his enemies in John 19, 7 said. Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, and the Jews explain they want him dead, and it's because they have a law that demands Jesus' death because he has made himself the Son of God. See, the Jews are not confused at Jesus' claims. They knew that he was claiming to be God. So we should not have any question or doubt in our mind as we read the Gospel of John either. We say, oh, well, he is claiming to be God, and they understood it. And then, as I mentioned, Jesus' disciples understood Jesus' claims and taught others to believe him as well. That's why John wrote this down. John believes that Jesus is God. He doesn't recant from this claim, even when later on in his life, he'll be plunged into boiling oil and miraculously come out of that unscathed, which is wild. And then I think they all looked around at one another, and they're like, how do we kill this guy? They're like, I don't know. Let's send him to an island, Patmos. He'll just be exiled, marooned on an island like Jack Sparrow. Uh, But then there, jokes on them, God has greater purposes because that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Suckers, you can't thwart the plans and purposes of God. 
It's crazy. And John isn't the only one who believed that Jesus is God either and taught others to repent and believe. In fact, every single Christian who has ever been converted by God has believed the exact same thing. That's why we are saved from facing the wrath of God against our sin, because we believe that Jesus stood condemned for us in our place. Friends, we need to get right who is Jesus. And the Bible helps us to know who Jesus is and what he demands from us. So we can't miss this from the opening lines. Jesus is God. From the beginning, he existed alongside of the Father in a personal face-to-face relationship of equality, and he is God. He's the one who made all things, including you and I. And that's what this next verse is saying. It says, in him was life, and life was the light of men. He is the one, this is referring to creation, that he's the one who created. He's the one who created you and me. He is the one that gives air into your lungs. He is the one who made you as the person you are. He made you the boy or girl, the man or woman that you are. It's a beautiful thing. He's the one who gave you life. And he's the one who is the light of men. And this is why, as we look at all things around us, we ought to rightly see them and praise Jesus for what he has done. He is the creator. Which then brings us to verse 5, where we read about the mission of Jesus. And this is what we read, this opening, this first little line of of verse 5. It says, the light shines in the darkness. It's the mission of Jesus. Now, throughout this book, light and darkness are going to play a huge theme, which makes it one of my favorites. There's this tension that is put on display throughout these mediums, light and darkness. And part of Jesus' mission given to him by the Father is to shine into the darkness with the light of salvation. And throughout this gospel, we will see him do that. We will see Jesus preaching and proclaiming the very words of God into the darkness. And yet, as he does, what we see is that people will love the darkness rather than the light because, John will tell us, their works are evil. They love their rebellion against God. And so when the light of Jesus shines in the darkness and pierces it, it's kind of like the lights being turned on in your bedroom by your parents in the morning, getting ready for school, they like open up the door, flip on the light and say, good morning. And you're like, it's not a good one. Or if you have littler children, it's like them walking into your bedroom at 2 a.m. and flipping on the light and you like, like crawl under the covers and you hit your spouse and say, your turn. And it's a game to see who can do it fastest. You know what that's like. Um, but it's kind of like that. It's like, it's like, turn off the light. I hate it. And that's exactly what happens when the light of Christ shines in the darkness of our hearts. You and I, as we're reading God's word, naturally, the first thing that happens when we hear God's words is we hate them. We want to run from them, every single one of us. Why? Well, John 3.20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So that's the mission of Jesus is to to pierce into the darkness with his light. Yet verse five ends with a promise. So the light shines in the darkness, but look at this promise, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, this is what we will see unfold as we walk through this book. The light of Christ, salvation itself, will pierce into the darkness, and the darkness will rebel against it and lead to Jesus' death on the cross, thereby accomplishing the very purposes of why he came in the first place, to lay down his life as a ransom. But then three days later, he will be raised from the dead. This book is wild. You get to the end of it, and you're like, darkness has won. I thought you said darkness would not overcome the light. What is happening? And then, light. And you're like, oh, I get it. And this is what happened here. Jesus conquers over darkness and makes it possible for his sheep, his church, you and I, to be saved from the consequences of our sin and rebellion against the Father. 
Thus, the promise here at the very beginning that John wants us to know, as we're reading through this book, there will be darkness, there will be light. The darkness will try to struggle against and overcome the light, but the darkness will not overcome the light of Christ. And so this little verse, verse 5, is a little window into everything that we will see unfold in the Gospel of John. Kind of how Psalm 1 and 2 is the window that tells you everything that will happen in the book of Psalms. So this is a little window letting you know at the very beginning, hey, everything is going to be great. Christ will win the day. Darkness will not. Jesus will win. So as we start off our study with these amazing statements about Jesus, as John kind of sets the stage for everything that he's about to write in this gospel, so that in everything that will unfold, that we might remember, firstly, who is Jesus? In the beginning, he was there with the Father in perfect equality and relationship. He is the agent of creation. He's the one who gives light and life. And his mission is to shine into the darkness. And we are promised that the darkness will not overcome him. And I cannot wait to keep preaching through this book. And I pray that if you are here and you're not a Christian, that you might continue to join with us in our study so that you might, by God's grace, come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing on him, you may have life. And if you are a Christian, I pray that as we swim as elephants in this massive pond, this ocean of God's grace, that God would use this study to grow you deeper in your belief, to ground you more sturdily, and to persevere you joyfully.